Good morning. I wonder uh, how many of you over the past uh, weeks have found yourself, similar to the song that we just sang, found yourself wondering or asking, why, oh Lord? Maybe you found yourself asking, where are you, Lord? Or how long, oh Lord? I think about uh, our, our time as a church praying for Afghanistan. And I know that many of you have uh, close friends there and uh, those that don't lament what's happening there. Perhaps you found yourself asking those questions. Maybe it's in the, any number of natural disasters that have taken place over the past months. The pandemic we found ourselves in for almost two years could be something in your own personal life. Marriage and singleness, children, relatives, friendships, maybe your own personal spiritual life. You've wondered, why, Lord? And, and the question why is, a, is an honest question. We see it throughout Scripture. And uh, we actually began talking about uh, us wondering and, and asking questions about suffering in our lives this earlier this morning during the foundations class. Uh, so we'll continue a series through that. And, and in our time this morning, I want to continue thinking about that question. How do we have faith when it's hard to see what God's doing, when it's hard to understand what God is up to, when it's difficult to see how God could bring any good out of the situation that we find ourselves in? Now, I imagine there's probably some people here this morning who, when you suffer, your world gets turned totally upside down. You have no no way to process suffering. And I do hope that as we think about uh, the text this morning, uh, uh, it will offer fresh hope to you. I think many of us are Christians. We know that in suffering, God is in control. We can trust him. But we also find that that there is a real battle to have faith, to truly believe that's true deep in our hearts. Uh, And I think one of the ways that that truths that we know take deeper root in our hearts, one of the ways that that happens is as we look at the inspired stories of Scripture that prove God's faithfulness, even in the least likely situations. And so I think one of the greatest story, one of the most helpful stories, at least in my life to that end, is the story of Esther. And so I want to invite you to to open your Bibles to the book of Esther. You can start in chapter 1. now, I think to understand the main point of Esther, I think it's helpful to think about Esther as a whole story. It's, it's a story, and, and the author seems to have a key point in that story. And so I want to consider all 10 chapters. So we'll start in chapter 1, and a little bit I'll, I'll step through uh, the main events in those chapters. But though we'll cover 10 chapters, my, my sermon point, and I think the, we can summarize the point of the book of Esther uh, in one single point. And so this is, this is the point I want to focus on in our time uh, this morning, is that even when God seems absent, that is, when he he seems like he's not there, even when God seems absent, he is working for the good of his people in surprising ways. So even when he seems absent, even when we find ourselves asking those questions, where are you, God? How long, O Lord? When any good seems impossible, even in those times, He's not only present, but he's working. He's active. He's near. He's doing things. And he's working on what? He's working for the good of his people. He's working for the good of people who are united to him by faith. And he's he's holy. He's genuinely, he's no strings attached, working for their good. And sometimes, certainly in our story, maybe even often, he does this in surprising ways. 
He does it in ironic ways. He does it in ways that surprise us, that shock us, that turn the world upside down, that take down the proud from their lofty positions and lift up the lowly, that cause evil people in this world to fall into their own traps. Ways that can only be explained by God's surprising providence. So my single point for the sermon is even when God seems absent, he's working for the good of his people in surprising ways. And everything we're about to say is going to circle around that point. And I hope, uh, with God's help, that at the end of our time, we will believe this truth more deeply. We'll be more confident of this in our own hearts, in the trials that we find ourselves in, even this morning. So the plan is I'm going to step through those 10 chapters. So again, if you don't have your Bibles open or pulled up on your phone, I'd encourage you open to Esther chapter 1. We're going to step through those chapters. I'm going to do my best to summarize the story. Uh, there will be things that we have to leave out in the interest of time, but uh, if you haven't read Esther recently, read it again uh, over the next couple of weeks, and uh, I think it will be an encouragement. And uh, what we'll then do is we'll think about, we'll make some observations about what we see in the story, and then think about what is the author's aim for the, the readers, and, and how should we uh, understand this story and then apply this story in our lives as believers, as followers of Jesus. We'll conclude with that. So let me briefly just give you the historical background. So God's people had been exiled to Babylon because of their disobedience. And, and since that time, some of the Jewish people who were exiled to Babylon had been able to return to their homeland. And we read about those stories in Ezra and Nehemiah. But there were some Jews that were still in captivity in what is now Persian Empire. And as we look at chapters 1 to 2, we begin to see the setting and the context for the main action that's going to play out in our story. So I'm going to start, uh, and you can track along with me, beginning in chapter 1. So the first chapter, what we read about is this massive kingdom. It stretched from uh, roughly modern-day Egypt up into southern Europe down to the border of modern-day India. And it was not only a massive empire, it was an extremely rich empire. We, we see this in the beginning of the story by, by these over-the-top feasts that were put on by the ruling king, Ahasuerus, or if you have some translations, it, it might say Xerxes, um, that were aimed to, if you look at verse 4, show off the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. So this important king and this important empire orders his queen, Vashti, <clears throat> to come uh, in front of all the men at this feast in order to show off her beauty, but she refuses to come. And as a result of this, the, it looks bad for the king, uh, and it looks bad for his high-ranking officials, so they give him counsel, and they say, you know, we're worried we're going to lose control of women in the kingdom, so we need to punish her by giving her queenship to somebody else because we're afraid of what will happen to all the other women in the kingdom if we don't do that. So they set out to find a replacement. Then if you flip over to chapter 2, verse 5, we're introduced to two of the Jewish exiles that are in that capital city, Mordecai, and then Mordecai's relative, Esther. <clears throat> we learn that Mordecai had raised Esther as his own daughter after her parents died. We see that Esther is one of these women who's, who's among the women taken to the king's harem to be considered as a replacement for Queen Vashti, which is described in chapter 2, verses uh, 12 to 14, uh, which ultimately leads to the king selecting a new queen. We learn that Esther quickly gains favor in the eyes of the king's servants and ultimately the king himself, and so she becomes queen in place of Ashtai. But throughout this whole process, she doesn't tell about her Jewish ethnicity. At the end of chapter 2, we, we see this, this 
curious story that we'll, we'll learn more about later, this curious story where Mordecai hears a plot to kill the king and then warns the king of this plot through Queen Esther. And this good act that Mordecai did is recorded in uh, the king's books. All right, flip over to chapter 3. So in chapter 3, we might expect to see Mordecai rising in ranks, gaining favor in the eyes of the king, but instead we don't see that. We see that uh, another character is introduced. We see Haman rising to be over all of the officials. And Haman is identified as an Agagite, which means we know that he's a historic enemy of the Jewish people. And he is, as we might suspect, indeed the the villain of our story. So we see in in, in verse uh, 5 of chapter 3, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, even though this is an order from the king. People have to bow down to Haman. And we see that Haman's response is he's filled with fury. In verse 6, it shows how angry he is by what Mordecai did. It said, he disdained to only punish Mordecai. Instead, what he wanted to do was to kill all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire empire. So Haman uh, casts poor, which is something like dice that were, were used to inquire of the gods to select a day to kill all of Mordecai's people. The king then gives his, his signet ring to Haman, and if you look at verses 13 to 15, we see that the decree was sent out to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old women and children, based on the date that was selected by poor. So after this decree goes out, of course, the capital is confused, uh, and we see that our villain and the most powerful man in the world sit down to continue drinking. If we go to chapter 4, we see Mordecai, uh, understandably, along with all the Jews, are in great mourning and lamenting and fasting. Mordecai then tells Esther about the plot and instructs her, you need to go to the king and tell her, tell him uh, to save the life of your people. In, Esther, or in uh, chapter 4, verse 11, Esther explains she can't go to the king. There's this well-known law that if you're not invited, but you go into the king's chamber, you'll die. The only hope is that the king might hold his scepter out to receive you. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, I want to I read this, so, so follow along as I read this. We see Mordecai begins to reason with Esther. Here's what Mordecai says. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We see Esther's famous reply in verse 16. Esther says, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. As we move into chapter 5, we see Esther enters the king's chamber, and to our pleasant surprise, he receives her. The king is willing to give her anything she wants, and instead of asking for her request immediately, curiously, uh, she requests that the king come to a feast. The king agrees, uh, and at the end of the feast, the king once again asks Esther, state your request, but she again asks for him to come to another feast the next day, then She'll state her request. 
chapter 5, verse 9, we see Haman, remember the villain of the story, he leaves joyful and glad of heart, but he sees Mordecai again. And Mordecai doesn't respect him again. And once again, he's filled with wrath against Mordecai. So Haman goes home and he invites all of his friends and his family uh, and, and invites his wife to come in. And he begins by telling them how great his riches are, how many sons he has, his rank above everyone else in the kingdom. Even the fact that just he and the king were invited to Queen Esther's feast. But the real purpose of Haman's meeting is not to brag. He wants to have a pity party. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, Haman says, Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. As if killing all of Mordecai's people isn't enough to satisfy his anger, he continues, verse 14, Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, or a pole in some translations, let a a gallows 50 cubits high, which is 22 meters high, 75 feet high for fellow Americans, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So I want to briefly summarize what all has happened. So Esther has replaced Queen Vashti in the Persian Empire, but her ethnicity is still unknown to the king. And Haman, who's now second in command, has influenced the king to have all the Jews killed because of his anger towards one person, Mordecai. And now he plans to kill Mordecai specifically in a very graphic, public, uh, shameful way. Now Esther is following the instruction of Mordecai, She's risking her, herself to expose her identity or her ethnicity and to expose Haman's plan and to plead for her people. But at this point in the story, we're left wondering, is she too late? It seems like uh, Mordecai's death is imminent. Will she be able to tell the king in time? And even if she did, will the king listen? Well, chapter 6 is where things begin to change. The action begins to pick up. So the night before the feast the second feast, and the day that Haman planned to kill Mordecai, we see that the king can't sleep that night. And so he goes and he has the books that recorded previous events read to him. And they happen that night to read about the time that Mordecai saved the king's life. Remember, like in chapter 2. The king learns nothing's actually been done to thank Mordecai for saving the king's life. And then right then, the king asks, asks his servant, who's in the outer court of the palace right now? And it just so happens Haman had just entered. Now, Haman was coming in to say, I want to build a, a gallows or a pole, 50, uh, tw- you know, 22 meters high in order to hang Mordecai on it. And so the king invites Haman in, and let's look at chapter 6, verse 6, to see what happens. So the king asks Haman, Haman, what, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh all, and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Once again, after the second feast, uh, the king asks Esther once again what her request is, and she tells him of the plot against her people. And the king is enraged, and he demands to know who dared to do this. And if you flip over to chapter 7, verse 6, we see Esther's response. She says, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king leaves drunken in a rage from the scene, and he happens to walk back into the scene as Haman is is falling down, pleading for his life to Esther, which further enrages the king because the king thinks he's assaulting her. And so one of the king's servants in chapter 7, verse 9, says to the king, the gallows, again, the, the pole in some translations, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. As we continue through the story, moving into chapter 8, we see these reversals continue. Um, Haman took Mordecai's place on the gallows that were set up for Mordecai. We see Mordecai is now given the signet ring that Haman had, and he's elevated to Haman's place in the kingdom. See in chapter 8, verse 5, Esther pleads to revoke the edict that instructed to kill all of the Jews uh, from the beginning. But we learn in verse 8, unfortunately, an edict can't be reversed. They're irreversible. But she can write a new edict. And this edict would call for the opposite of the first edict. So in, in chapter 8, verse 11, the Jews are ordered to defend themselves by killing their enemies. This was quickly issued like the first edict. And so we see as a result, there's much joy and celebration. There's fear of the Jews. So what originally was an edict to destroy all of Mordecai's people leads to an edict that would allow them to destroy anyone who wanted to harm them. So we see that the edict is not just stopped. Chapter 9, verse 1 says the reverse occurs. The opposite occurs. We see uh, verse 1, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews Hope to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And then we see that Mordecai and Esther appoint a two-day feast that the Jews were to always remember and to celebrate as a day of great reversals, a day of victory, a day of salvation for the Jews. And because that day was selected by Pur, by Haman, uh, they called the day Purim. And so our story concludes as we get into chapter 10. Uh, verse 3, where we see Mordecai elevated to second in command. He was seen great among the Jewish people because he sought their welfare. 
Now, when we think about this story as a whole, uh, it actually seems, maybe you picked up on this, it seems to have what's sometimes called a chiastic structure. So that means the beginning of the story corresponds to the end, the next part corresponds to the next, the second part to the end, and on and on and on. And it, it directs our attention to the very center of the story. So let me show you. So at the, at the beginning, we see the king's greatness. At the end, we see Mordecai's greatness. The next thing in the story that we see is this feast celebrating the empire's greatness. Near the end of the story, we see another feast celebrating the Jewish people's greatness. Next, we see Haman's rise to power. That corresponds to Mordecai's rise to power. We see an edict go out to destroy the Jews. Then we see an edict go out to protect the Jews. And all of this leads up to then those two feasts, right? And in between those two feasts, the first one and the second one, all the main events of the story play out. So it it draws our attention to these really uh, ironic, coincidental reversals that we read about in the middle of the story. So it's amazing. It's an amazing story. And uh, again, I would encourage you, if you've not read it recently, read it. Hope it's an encouragement and trust it will be an encouragement to you. What I want to do now, now that we've thought about the story, I want to spend some time making observations and trying to think through what does the story mean? What does it mean for us today? And, and one of the problems, maybe you've, you've heard this before, maybe even you noticed this, one of the problems that we have to think about at the very beginning of the story is there is an important character in the story missing. So, we, so, so Esther is a story that's in Scripture. We, we believe Scripture is from God. It's about God. But interestingly, in this story, God is never mentioned. So God is not mentioned. His word isn't mentioned. His law isn't mentioned. His covenant isn't mentioned. His relationship to his people is not mentioned. There's nothing mentioned. And, and one of the ways we can interpret that is we could say, well, then Esther isn't about God. It's not a, it's not a book or a story about God. And actually, some people have criticized the book of Esther historically. But I think there's another possibility. And, um, and I want to share some uh, examples of, of how we see this uh, in, in, in our daily life. There's another possibility that silence on a topic could, in the one case, mean it's not interested in that topic. In the second case, it could mean that the silence could actually have meaning. So let, let me give you a, an example um, Maybe you've been in a conversation with somebody, and sometimes what people don't say in the conversation is as important as what they do say. So, for example, if I said to my wife, I love you, and then she responded and she said, thanks. There's nothing wrong with saying thanks, right? She might appreciate that I love her, but what I'm focused on is why didn't she say I love you too, right? I would expect that she would say I love you too, so so maybe something's wrong. Maybe I need to ask what's Wrong. That's one example. What people don't say can mean as much as what they do say. I think another thing, imagine in a, in a book or in a movie, you've probably uh, read about or seen a scene where two characters are walking through a scene and they suddenly realize it's quiet. One of the characters says, it's quiet. And the other character responds, too quiet. So suddenly the, the silence has meaning. There's, it draws the audience's attention in. One final example, if you're a parent or you are um, ever responsible for taking care of children, have probably faced a situation where you, you hear the kids in another room happily playing and suddenly it gets quiet. And we would, we would think that means, oh, they're playing happily, everything's great. But, but our reaction, I think, informed by wisdom, is what are they up to? What are they doing? What's wrong? So there is a type of silence that's meant to draw our attention. 
And I believe that's the case with our story. The, the author's silence invites us to look more closely, to ask the question, where is God? So I want to I show you why I think this is the case uh, and give you a few reasons. So the first reason is, okay, when we, think, when we zoom out of Esther, we think about Esther in the bigger story of Scripture, the, the developing story of redemption. There's another story uh, that's very similar, but also has key differences than Esther. It's the story of Daniel. God's people are under a foreign empire. Uh, there's, there's lots of similarities. So, for example, Esther and Daniel, early in those stories, both begin to gain favor in the eyes of the king's servants and the king. But it's interesting, if you read Daniel, it's very clear, God gave Daniel favor. In Esther, there's no explanation for why Esther gained favor. We also see in the book of Daniel, there are three Jews who, like Mordecai, refuse to bow down at the king's command. And we're told in Daniel, it's because the Jews serve a God who can even rescue them from whatever punishment the king would inflict. But we're actually never told why Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman. It's possible he just doesn't like Haman. We don't know. We also see in Daniel, there's, there's countless examples of miracles, of miraculous salvation, of God's overt working. In Esther, there's no miracles. There's no divine signs. So we compare Esther to another similar story. We see God's absence from this story is surprising. Secondly, if we, if we look at the book of Esther alone, we see what seem to be God-sized holes missing from the story. So remember in Esther chapter 4, they talk about fasting and lamenting, and, and we're tempted to just sort of mentally add in, oh, they must have been praying, right? But it never says they were praying. It never says they were praying. It's not mentioned. Mordecai confidently says salvation for the Jews will come from somewhere. Haman's wife eventually says, uh, Haman, you're going to fall to the Jews. But unlike other parts of Scripture, there's no reason given why they think this. It's not mentioned. In chapter 9, remember, Purim is instituted as a holiday. But interestingly, we're never told that God instituted. We're never told that God ordained it. We never are told that God blessed the institution of that holiday. So I think we see God-sized holes even in the story itself. The third thing, the third thing I, I want to point our attention to is that you know, we thought about how the structure of the story points our focus to the very center. And what we see in that center of the story is that it is not possible that any human is in control of those events. It's not possible that any human is in control of those events. In fact, I think the author, as we look at the story closely, the author goes to great lengths to say, the people you think are powerful, the people that you think might be heroes, are not powerful and are not heroes. Let's think through a list of the characters. So the king had this huge kingdom, but he's not in control. His queen doesn't listen to him. He ends up issuing two conflicting degrees with his signet, ring. He seems easily influenced by bad advisors. He replaces his second in command with the mortal enemy of his second in command. We also see Queen Vashti is not in control. She refuses to be objectified early in the story, but she loses her queenship and is out of the story early on. Esther is noble in her bravery. We'll think about that. And uh, I think there are a lot of commendable things. But, but if you carefully read uh, Esther's response to the situation, she depends on Mordecai to encourage her, maybe push her a little bit before she uses her position for the good of her people. And Mordecai admits uncertainty. He's not sure that salvation will come, how salvation will come about. He simply says, maybe, perhaps you were brought up for such a time as this. We're also even further, unlike Daniel, very much unlike Daniel, not given any evidence God's people are being faithful to the covenant. And it's in a world with so much moral ambiguity, drunkenness, 
a Jewish woman marrying a pagan king, Mordecai allowing this to happen. Uh, Some have argued even the Jewish people's response based on that edict was an overstep. They went beyond self-defense. All of this is, again, unlike what we see in the book of Daniel. And of course, the character who seems least in control, Haman, is uh, led to uh, honor his enemy in the way that he wanted to be honored and die in the way that he hoped to kill his enemy. So I think we conclude, conclude that the author isn't focused on powerful people or heroes that we should admire. As we look at the center of the story, we are left wondering. We're left searching for the unnamed character in the story. So just want to remind you of the key events. So remember, these are the, the events placed perfectly between these two feasts. The king happens to be unable to sleep. Therefore, he happens to remember the day that Mordecai happened to hear of a plot against the king, all which conveniently happens the night before the second feast, which was the day that Haman planned to kill Mordecai. And, and, and in the midst of all of these coincidental events, there's the, all these timely events. Haman happens to enter the court just at the right time. The king happens to walk back into the scene as Haman is falling down before Queen Esther, which then leads to him dying on the device he prepared for his enemy. So what we see is all the events are perfectly timed to show Haman's wickedness and to save the Jewish people at just the right time. And so the the perfect timing, the shameful reversals were clearly not planned by any human. It's the work of an unnamed character in our story. A God who seems absent in a world where rulers are influenced by wicked people. There's no miracles. There's no prophets. There's no godly leaders. God's people seem unimpressive at best. And yet we clearly see God is working out salvation for his people in surprising ways. We can see how this story would have been an encouragement to early Jewish readers. As they would celebrate Purim, they would, uh, perhaps even in a foreign land, much like the Jews in this story, in a place where God seems so far away. But what I want to show us is, as Christians, on this side of the cross, uh, this story has an even richer meaning. It was, a, it was a foreshadow to an even greater story. I want to point out some of the parallels uh, between this story and this greater story that it points forward to. So in our story, Haman influenced this impressionable king to murder the innocent. But in the greater story, we also see a wicked crowd influence a a leader to crucify an innocent man, to let a criminal go free. Just like Haman sought to kill all of the Jewish people, the line of people who were supposed to bring the Savior into the world, Satan enters Judas to kill the very Savior we were waiting for. Like God appeared silent in the story of Esther, seemed like he had abandoned his people on the cross, God turned his face away from the only truly righteous man to exist. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Esther risked her life for her people, we see Jesus do the same, except he's not spared, but dies. Now in this greater story, it really seemed like all hope of salvation was lost. But just like the story of Esther is full of ironic reversals, this day was also full of ironic reversals. Just like Haman's decree to kill all of God's people was not only stopped, the reverse occurred and led to God's people defeating their enemies. Satan's attack on this day against God's people actually brought about the greatest victory for God's people. 
our forgiveness and our peace with God. Just like Haman was killed on the same device he prepared for Mordecai, so also Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus triumphed over and shamed all satanic powers on the cross. Esther 9.22 summarizes what Purim is this way. It's a, it's a celebration to remember a day that turned from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. Well, Jesus, in, in John 16.20, he, he's telling his disciples about his coming death, and he says, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy, and no one will take your joy from you. Indeed, the disciples, after Christ's death, seemed to have lost all hope until they heard a surprising report. The tomb is empty. He defeated death. He rose again. And like Mordecai's exaltation leads to the blessing and care of God's people throughout this huge empire, his rule was still limited in size and it was limited in duration. In our greater story, Christ ascends to heaven as our king forever with all authority in heaven and on earth, ruling for the good of his people. So as a Christian, you believe that the moment it seemed God most abandoned his people, when evil launched its greatest attack against his people on the darkest day in human history, and during the greatest injustice, it was actually in that moment God worked his greatest victory, brought about his greatest good for his people. So this is what we believe as followers of Christ, from, from Esther and chiefly from the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have great reason for hope and faith, no matter what season we're in. So I don't know those things that have led you to, to wonder, uh, where are you, Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We thought about at the beginning. But I, I want to I encourage you in a few ways as we think about God's surprising providence. First thing is I want to call you to take comfort in this reality. Though we don't get the answers, though life seems confusing, though life seems out of control, don't forget the God of the book of Esther, the God of the gospel, who even when he seems absent, is working for the good of his people in surprising ways. He's, he's working all things together for good in the midst of a dry spiritual season and messy relationships and disappointment and confusion, even in discipline, all things. So I wonder, do you preach that truth to yourself? Do you rest in that truth in all seasons? Are you resting in that truth even now? Secondly, I want to encourage you to hope uh, in things that God has promised. Hope in things that God has promised. I think one of the reasons we struggle to believe what I just said is we spend a lot of our life hoping in things that we believe we need to be happy, but God has never promised. And I think we see a good example of this in the story. Notice that Mordecai, as he's talking with Esther acknowledges that they might die, but salvation for the Jews will come from somewhere. So what Mordecai is thinking is that God won't abandon his promise to preserve the line of the Messiah, but he never promised to protect their life. Now we could preach endless sermons on the things God has promised. What then do we trust in? Um, and uh, wouldn't have time to cover all of them. I want to offer just one, perhaps the fountainhead of all the promises that we do have in Scripture that ultimately God's surprising providence is, brings us to himself. So we get God. As we chase all these things in the world that we believe will satisfy, God brings us to the one being who will truly satisfy. We read it just a bit ago, Psalm 107.9. 
the promise that, that God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Thirdly, I want to encourage us, as we think about God's surprising providence, to take bold steps of faith, trusting in God to act. So we, we see Esther's courage as she uh, enters the king's chamber. And I think sometimes we look at that and we think, if I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity like that, I would do it. And some of us will be called to that. Once-in-a-lifetime radical acts of courage that might lead to death. But I, I also I want to challenge us that to look to examine our lives and see, do we take small steps of obedience that require faith? So one of those would be sharing our, our own faith with other people. I think sometimes we don't have the courage to do that, trusting our Lord to act. It could be other things. It could be that you need to confess and ask for accountability uh, for an area of sin in your life. Maybe you need to give of time or money more sacrificially and rest in God's surprising providence. Whatever it is, I think Esther's example is helpful. She acknowledged, if I perish, I perish, and then she went for it. We can do the same thing, trusting in our God to act. Fourth, I want to warn those of you who are here who aren't right with this God. God's surprising providence working for the good of his people is good news, but it's not good news if you're not right with this God. In fact, it's, it's a warning that your life can seem to go well. You can seem to have it all together. Your career might be good. Your family might be good. You can even be a, a ruler in a great kingdom that issues decrees that harm God's people, but in the end, you will not win. So I want to warn you to, you're not right with this God, to be right with this God, to turn from your sin, to turn from whatever you're trusting in, to turn to Christ. The good news is, though, though this God, um, though this God is, is, is sovereign and he will punish evil, the good news is he's gracious and he's patient. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he leaves the doors open for enemies like some of us are, like all of us once were, to come in through Christ. So I would encourage you, if you're not right with, this, with God, turn from your sin, trust in Christ. Finally, I want to call us to remember that God's surprising providence opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In our story, Haman is, uh, exposes how foolish pride is. Pride drives his hatred of Mordecai and God's people. Pride drives his murder uh, his decree to commit murder. Pride drives his discontentment. And so the result is he faces the deadly consequences of pride. As we think about Haman's character, we're first meant to laugh. We're first meant to see how foolish pride is. Maybe even as I was talking about Haman, you were thinking of people. Oh yeah, that person likes to brag. That person loves themselves. They only talk about themselves. We hate the Hamans of the world. But I think our story also invites us to examine ourselves. Sure, we're not as bad as Haman, but I wonder, are we sometimes or often driven by a similar pursuit of making our own name great, a similar obsession with our own selves? And I think if we're honest, we look a lot more like Haman than we'd like to admit. This is why the Bible is full of warnings against pride and calls to humility. Just think about how you would respond to some of the situations that Haman Faced. So when people don't give you the respect you deserve, maybe they make little comments, they uh, fail to compliment, maybe they commit serious offenses against you, does that lead to you being bitter in your heart? Do you fail 
like Haman, to see the many things God has given you and only focus on the relatively small offenses in your life? Do you distort injustices against you? Remember, Haman was wronged by one man, so he wants to kill all of his people. Do you distort injustices against you? Is it hard for you to feel like wrongs against you have been settled? Maybe you demand unreasonable things for wrongs against you, or you hold grudges for a long time. Why? Because the offense was against you. Think about this past week. How often did you think carefully about the good of other people? And compare that with how often you got worried, you got angry, you made decisions based on serving yourself. I think we're in danger of this in secular pursuits, like in careers and jobs. Uh, We're also in danger of this within the church. We can make the church about serving our needs, about making a name for our own selves. I also want to address the youth and the teenagers who are here. I think one place pride plays out in the life of youth and teenagers, myself included as a, a youth and teenager, is, and it's, it's, it's addressed clearly in Scripture, is in the way that we relate to our parents. So Paul tells us to the, the first command with a promise is to honor your father and mother. Why? That it may go well with you. Which means the opposite is true. That as you think you know better than your parents, you're actually making life harder for yourself. You're following in the example of Haman in our story. Well, whatever the form of pride is in our lives, our story directs us to see prideful Haman 22 meters high and remember that God's surprising providence opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what do we do? But when we see our hearts are not that different than Haman's, the good news is Jesus took our place up there. He died the death we deserve. He bore the wrath we deserve. He overcame death. He rose again, so that we can confess our sin of pride we can seek to be reconciled with one another and have full confidence that God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sin. And we can be thankful, like in the story of Esther, God is faithful to his people even when they don't deserve it. So we'll conclude. Whatever you're facing or you will face soon, we may not get all of the answers that we have. We may not know how long. We may not know why. But I want to call you to rest in God's surprising providence, to look to the story of Esther, to look to the good news of the gospel to build our faith, to call to mind the great promises God has to us, to put to death pride in our lives, to take bold steps in faith, trusting God to act. And I think as we do this, we will grow in trusting in the surprising providence of the God of Esther, the God of the gospel, the God who even when he seems absent is working the good of his people, in surprising ways. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your surprising providence. We thank you for stories like Esther. We thank you for uh, the ultimate picture of your surprising providence in the cross of Christ. We ask that you would grow our faith, even now, to trust you, even when we don't know why or how long, to trust you because of who you are and who you've shown yourself to be. We ask that whatever circumstances we're in, you would increase our joy. Lord, we pray this truth would sink deeper in our hearts today and this week and in the coming months. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.